All right, welcome back to the Poet Delayed podcast. Uh, this is Scott, uh, the host of the podcast. Forgot my name for a second there. <laughs> um, and I am joined today by Jackie Pack again. She uh, was with me, uh, I think, on episode 10, A Subtle Wound, and she has agreed to come back and talk with me about my poem, Dark Canopy and the Issue of Depression, which I think is something that impacts um, a lot of people, seems to be more and more lately. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, we, uh, I'm excited to have her. She is a therapist, um, Bountiful Salt Lake City-based therapist, owner of the he- Healing Paths. Um, and what else can you tell us about you, Jackie? Mother of four daughters. Mother to four daughters. They're all adults now, young adults, young adults, but adults. Adults nonetheless. Mm-hmm. They're, they've all turned the magical 18, so yes. they got all the magical adult wisdom. <laughs> dumped right, right. when they woke up that morning. Yeah. Um, and uh, how long have you uh, been a therapist? I have been a therapist since 1994. So the math is up there, a couple decades, almost pushing almost. three decades. That's right. I was going to say 20 years, but no, 30 years. Yeah. I've seen these memes on uh, Instagram and Facebook. It's funny because, you know, you don't realize that it's been 30 years since then or 40 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I, I always do the, you know, okay, 40 years ago, I was um, nine years old. 40 years before that, it was World War Two. Right. You know, I'm just like, what? No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So time marches When you on. put it close to world events, it's it condenses time and just says, wow. I'm time old. goes fast. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Time goes fast. Time goes fast, but also <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> yes, I am old. Um, well, thanks for joining me today. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to read the poem. Again, it's called Dark Canopy. Now, just kind of a preface of this. So I wrote this poem a year ago during a very difficult time in my life. And it was really just a way for me to express um, the pain that I was feeling and I remember writing this because it, it really just, you know, and I've talked on the podcast before, you know, poems that I work on. There's some poems that I work on for, you know, months and I go back and I go back and I go back and some of them, I just feel them and I just write them down. And this is one of the, the latter. I just wrote it down, made a couple changes, but not much. But anyway, so this poem is called Dark Canopy. It says, hopelessness covers me. Like a forest canopy on a moonless night, it covers me. I see no way or path to deliver myself in the darkness. It fills my eyes, and they are unable to see the torchlight of rescuers who may approach. All is black and dead. Every gleam is only a phantom, and the only variations in light are darker shadows waiting to finish me off for good. So, um... Yeah, it's a pretty dark time. Right. Um, I'm not there anymore. I mean, I still have my moments when I struggle. Um, and I've, I've felt this way at times since then and now. And I'm sure I'm going to feel this way at other times in the future. I, I don't know that uh, I will ever be free. And, I, and I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who can relate mm-hmm. to that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I talk to you about this, uh, you know, I one thing that came to mind was, um, you know, I've heard the term situational depression 
And I've often thought that that's probably what I'm struggling with, you know, as opposed to clinical depression or the uh, um, DSM terms it uh, a major depressive disorder, mm-hmm. MDD. So, so you have, you know, those two things. Um, and it seems like, so depression is just kind of a general term for um, bigger issues. Right. Complex issues. Complex issues. So I guess to start out with, um, is there a, a, a way to distinguish or how, you know, we're not going to reference a DSM because that's really technical and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, but it's technical. And sometimes I also call it a catalog for insurance companies mm. to decide what they want to cover and what they don't, you know, what? how much they want to put out and how much they don't. Uh, it all comes back <laughs> to insurance companies. It does. Um, well, so let's then talk just in layman's terms about situational depression and we'll call it clinical depression. Okay. And we'll distinguish those two. So, when when someone says situational depression, or if you were to talk to somebody about as a professional, if you were to talk to somebody about situational depression, what would you be referring to? How would you what would you be describing that as? Yeah, I mean, I think you know when I was new in the field, the two terms we used was chemical depression, which was kind of thinking something just went off in the body, right? Something was just wrong in our body chemically. So there was chemical depression, and then we would also call it situational depression. Like something had happened and the response to that event was depression. Now, I recall a, a conversation I was having with my um, supervisor at the time and being confused as a new therapist. And I was like, I, you know, I, I keep having these clients who have been diagnosed chemical depression, but we keep finding situations. And like... I was kind of like, which one is it, right? Like what comes first, the situation or the chemical? I don't like if their mother was depressed and her mother was depressed, isn't that a situation? Is that Hmm. DNA? Is that biological? Because it seems to me like both. So I think, you know, sometimes I look back, I don't remember my supervisor's answer. I'm sure it was great. Um, But... I look back and over the time that I've been in the field, you know, we we have, you know, the, the DSM term for maybe what we would look at as situational. It's a little less uh, severe. We might look at that, you know, the, t- the term would be dysthymia, which is, you know, a year or more of these symptoms, but they're not necessarily rising to the level of major depressive disorder, which, you know, usually includes some suicidal ideation or just really non-functioning, you know, with dysthymia, they'd be functional, not, you know, they, they're not going to be your happiest person out there, but they're moving through life, maybe at a slower pace, but they're moving, right? They're, Mm -hmm. they're showing up to their job or they're, you know, they're out of bed, that type of stuff. They're not like, you know, in bed for months or something like that. So, I mean, the other thing I will say about the DSM is it's, it's descriptive in nature. You know, so dysthymia is descriptive. Major depressive disorder is descriptive. There's a couple of different descriptors. Now, when you say descriptive, explain explain that. So, you know, with major depressive disorder, there's, it's descriptive. This person looks like this. They have so many of of these nine traits. They have 
three of them or four of them. Okay. Right? And that qualifies them for the diagnosis. Okay. Now we might add it's recurrent. It's not a single incident. Mm -hmm. You know, a single incident would be a different descriptor than recurrent, you know, severity. That's going to, you know, there are certain descriptive words or descriptive labels that we would put on the severity of it. So it's descriptive. It doesn't, the DSM doesn't necessarily look at origin okay. or causation. Okay. So it's just looking at, okay, we have, um, you know, through the studies or, or whatever, we've determined that somebody, so somebody who has major depressive disorder, there are, you know, nine traits that we see. And mm-hmm. in order to qualify or order to be diagnosed, then the individual needs to check positive for at least three or four of them. And then that, you know, so you've got nine to choose from. If you get four of them, then your diagnosis is a right. Major right. Impressive. If you're hitting more than the <clears throat> three or four, then, you know, that might indicate a higher level of severity, which, you know, in the, in the diagnostic diagnostic code, it would change the number of mm. the diagnosis, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's descriptive, which I think is, it's good to have descriptions. And, you know, I am one, when I'm supervising newer therapists, I typically say uh, diagnoses are good if they're helpful. <laughs> um, if they're not helpful, we need to talk that out with our clients. You, uh, in the last podcast we did in the, um, that I did with you, you mentioned uh, uh, re- relational as opposed to I don't know, clinical maybe about like relational therapy mm. and how does that play into what you're mentioning? Cause I, as you, as you describe this to me, I'm thinking, okay, so it's descriptive. So you've got to check four out of nine, for instance. And that to me seems very, um, very clinical. It's, it's, there's no emotion in it. It's just, um, clinical white, mm-hmm. white walls and so forth. So when you talk about relational therapy, is that how does that relate to what you're saying, or does it relate? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm off on a tangent here. Yeah, I mean, I think there's different types of therapists out there, you know. So I would say a relational therapist, you know, the term that you're going to be looking for is some somebody who works from an interpersonal lens. So it's not just looking at behavior and giving you some here's what you need to change. Here's some tools that you can use, skills that you can learn, and you're out the door, right? Mm-hmm. There are those therapists out there, and there's a need for those therapists out there. Um, you know, interpersonal therapy, you know, it's a relationship between the therapist and the client, and we're using that relationship to try to help the client make some changes. You know, it's not just that it only impacts the client, it impacts the therapist as well. So that's a different type of showing up in the room. Mm-hmm. With your client, if you're working from that interpersonal model and those therapists are out there too, it's a little bit uh, longer term in nature because we're trying to address it, I would say, maybe on a deeper level. We're healing some attachment injuries. We're healing some of the things that, you know, situations that have gone wrong for clients in the past. And we're trying to provide a more corrective relational experience okay all right yeah, the, what brought that to my mind was i just think <clears throat> um perhaps i was just thinking that perhaps you know somebody is checking the boxes but or maybe they're not checking the boxes of mm-hmm. 
the depression for whatever reason, but, um, maybe getting beyond just the box checking and having the, uh, uh, relational type, uh, therapeutic experience, maybe that could, um, reveal that, yeah, this isn't checking the boxes for clinical depression, but, you know, through our therapy, I can, I'm, I'm seeing that that's what we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think that also gets at, we have to treat it at the origin source or at the origin sources. We would Mm -hmm. say typically it's not just one. So how we approach, you know, the diagnosis maybe gets insurance to pay or helps us understand what's happening. Right. I mean, with TikTok, you know, I get clients who come in and they're like, I think I'm narcissistic. And I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about that. Like why it's a pretty mm-hmm. complex diagnosis and I don't think it can be captured in a TikTok. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll pull out the DSM and say, here's the criteria. Let's talk it through. And they're like, oh, I'm not narcissistic. And I'm like, right, yeah, right. Or, you know, there's some heavy labels out there that people will come in with. Well, let's talk through what that looks like. Let's talk through the descriptors, see why those descriptions might fit you. But ultimately, we have to decide, like, how are we going to treat this? Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that, you know, I've often wondered if maybe it's just my feed on Instagram and Facebook that uh, I don't have TikTok yet, but Instagram, Facebook that um, because there is a a barrage of mental health posts. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if everybody gets those or if it's just me, but I just think, yeah, anybody who has any thought of maybe I'm this or that. I mean, there's something to justify your having this or that. I mean, right, right. And so it's, it's, I mean, I guess it, it gets awareness out there, but it also, um, I think it could be kind of scary for people as mm-hmm. well, you mm-hmm. know, not, you know, not knowing if it's true or not, and then not wanting to go find out if it actually is true. Right. So, well, and, and people who are putting it out there, I think are going to have to do so in a pretty broad way, mm-hmm. um, which misses the individual, right? And yeah. so that's sometimes what I'll find with clients who are coming in. We have to talk through what that means on an individual basis and, you know, what is narcissism versus pain? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a that's a, that's a good point. Just being out, yeah. Um, that's what I've found is, is I will, like I remember when I was growing up, I thought I was just the happiest person ever. Mm-hmm. I was never down. It didn't seem like. And I look back now and I just think, what in the world was going on? And I, and I understand it better now where I was just coping and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. avoiding any negative thing. And I was just rolling with everything. And, you know, and I, I noticed a shift, I guess, I was about 23 years old. It's when I first started. I remember sitting on my sofa one day just thinking, I don't feel good. You know, mm-hmm. I don't feel happy. I'm lonely. I don't, I, I thought you would think that I could just go out and hang out with some friends, but I didn't know how to do that. And so I, I look back at those experiences and it just, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know who to talk to. And so I just pushed it back down again and I just mm-hmm. kind of ignored it. And, and, and so now as I look back, I, I wonder, 
okay, is it is it clinical depression or is it situational depression? And um, because there's sometimes when I feel like shit, um, I, I can, maybe I need to put an E on this episode now because I said that, I don't know. But I feel that way in the mornings. I feel that way in the morning when I wake up a lot. But what I found is if I get up and take a shower and get moving, that a lot of times that heaviness will dissipate mm-hmm. and go away. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, I think, okay, it's situational. It's situational. So what are some things that we can look for? And, 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 I, and I wonder too, like, can somebody be both clinical and situational to where there is this, um, just this, uh, this depressive, clinical depressive theme that weaves through their life, but they have moments of situational depression that just really tank them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, since the mid-90s when I entered the mental health field, I think in many areas we've we've come a long way in the both and. Mm. It is both and, right? Situational, you know, just calling a situational, we don't want to minimize that that's depressive, right? It's not just having a bad day. I mean, it, it might be having a bad day, but it, it usually situational depression would still be a little bit longer than that because it gets at, you know, questioning myself, questioning mm. my worth, questioning my existence maybe. I, that can still go pretty deep, just like clinical depression can. So, you know, the other thing when I was graduating in the field, we would talk about, you know, is it nature or is it nurture? That's another one where it is both and. You know, um, Lisa Feldman Barrett, I think that's the order of the names, Lisa Feldman Barrett, she's a professor, studies emotions, and she, you know, kind of solves that debate by saying, we have a nature that requires nurture. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gabor Mate talks about, you know, talking about our body, and he'll say, our lungs expect oxygen. Similar to how our brain and our nervous system not only expects safety, nurturing, but also to be enjoyed, to be cherished. Hmm. Kabor Mate has a way to express things well. Yes, yeah, to just kind of cut through and yeah. start talking about origins. So, so, so let's talk about situational specifically then. So what are some things that you would look for? I mean, if if you were to, if you had somebody, a client come in or, or uh, a yeah, client, do you call them clients? I call them clients. Clients, okay. If you had a client come in, um, what types of things would, would be expressed to you where you would think, okay, I think we're dealing with situational depression here? I mean, it might be the ending of a relationship. You know, that's a situation. Again, you know, we'd need to look into attachment history mm-hmm. because- you know, attachment history can put us in the ballpark of clinical. Um, so, you know, some of it depends on, you know, how um, invasive are the symptoms um, between situational or clinical. Um, but, you know, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship. Um, you know, sometimes I've, I've worked with um, teenagers who are just really struggling, having a hard time that year in school. Um, or there's been a big transition in their life. They moved and they're just not 
you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily on them, but where they move to, the social circles aren't necessarily welcoming and opening as mm-hmm. teens can tend to not be. Um, and that's going to make them question, you know, like maybe I'm not that great. Maybe I'm really struggling. And I think sometimes, you know, you know, parents can say all the right things to their kids. And sometimes it helps to, you know, have a professional that doesn't know them, isn't mom, isn't dad, who can say, no, you are, you do matter and you have a lot to offer. And this is a tough year. And I don't know why socially you're having a hard time fitting in with these new people. It's not about you, right? But sometimes that's helpful also to come learn some skills from a therapist who isn't just mom and dad. And that's, you know, if mom and dad know what to say. Yeah. And that's if mom and dad know what to say. Right. If mom and dad don't have their own, you know, social issues or social pains, attachment injuries that they didn't work through. So uh, as a, like, so as a parent, so I'll, you've got four girls, I've got five kids, three girls, two boys. Um, as, as a parent, um, you know, so some of the things that you just mentioned, I would gather because I think most parents want to be aware of this with their children mm-hmm. and most parents want to be there for their children and to make sure that their children are emotionally safe. So from things that you just mentioned, I, a couple of things that I would say, okay, a parent should look for this. Like if there is any big change, like if you move, I mean, I, when I was a kid, we moved every couple of years. My dad was in the air force mm-hmm. and um, I just got used to it, but I, I can look back now and I, I recognize that that was very stressful for me. Very stressful. I, you know, go to new area, new places, and I didn't know anybody in high school. Lunch would come around. I would just kind of go sit outside by myself until I knew somebody. And that was stressful. Um, So I think, you know, look for, as as a parent, look for situations that are going to cause these types of stresses. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, changes in relationships with their friends. And uh, just anything that any traumatic events with their friends, and uh, so I, I guess I guess it comes down to just being aware of your children's lives, being mm-hmm. aware of what's going on, um, but also being aware of how that makes you feel as a parent. Right? Is it tapping into your unresolved issues? Is it tapping into your fears about what the, what this means? Was I good enough as a parent? Did I not do enough? Like, because then, you know, it's not just about our child's struggles and how they're feeling about that. It taps into ours and we may or may not be able to handle what's going on with our kid based on what it stirs up for us. Mm, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I, I felt, in, um, I have felt um, powerless at times when I see my kids struggling. I don't know what to do. I don't mm-hmm. know what to do. I can mm-hmm. listen. I'll listen yeah. to you, but otherwise, I don't know what to do. And uh, you know, and and so I guess that's when it's you know, I guess as parents, we shouldn't be afraid to um, reach out for help in situations mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so often, I think it is hard to reach out as, as a parent to think, okay, this is more than I can handle because listening is important. And I found that sometimes that's maybe just what they need, Mm -hmm. but there are situations where it is more than that. And I mean, 
Are there resources for parents in situations like that? I mean, you know, sometimes depending on socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. that certainly makes things harder, right? Or easier, which again, I mean, sometimes I think when we're talking about something like depression, we can't talk about these things without looking systemically at how things are being compounded Mm. by systems in place, right? I mean, yeah, if we could solve poverty, that would do a lot to help uh, help decrease some of the depression and suicidality that we see in our culture. Um, you know, we know that financial stress is a huge stressor um, that can lead to depression, feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm a failure. What does it even matter if I'm here, right? And And that pressure can simply compound on a person and make them depressed and non-functional. So I, I think it's, you know, in, in social work, that's the field that I studied, um, which I mean, most of the therapy fields talk about this. Social work, I think it's a little more emphasized because of its roots, right? Going back to the early 19th century, late 1800s, um, where they look at, you know, how do we look at things on a micro level with the individual, maybe that individual family system, how do we look at things on a meso level, like community support, maybe church support, neighborhood, that type of stuff? And then what are we doing on a macro level, right? What are we doing politically? What are we doing on a big scale to address what we see in this session with an individual or an individual family system? Yeah, I remember you mentioned you know financial problems, like. One thing I, when I think of the Great Depression is I think of, you know, people th- throwing themselves out of office mm-hmm. buildings because mm-hmm. it was all their finances were gone, and, um, I, I, you know, I wonder these people like two weeks earlier or whatever when they, when they had money, would they have thrown themselves out the window, you know? Right, right. And that gives a great deal of concern, like, because. You know, stepping back and looking at it and thinking, okay, finances. I mean, this is a very, I guess, clinical way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, taking the emotion out. What are fine? I mean, there are so many other aspects to your life other than your finances. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, you have family. You have um, things that you do to, you know, you enjoy. You've got your home, and I can, I see why. I see why someone's financial situation is interwoven throughout everything. Mm-hmm. But I guess if we had a, a I don't know, I, I guess what I'm saying is that one thing is so heavy, so heavy that it just blurs and blocks out everything else. And, you know, f- family, like loved ones is not enough to overcome that depression, that fear. Um, you know, the sun coming up in the morning is not enough mm-hmm. to overcome that fear. Um, I, I wrote a poem once, uh, the sun may still set and the sun may still rise, but it's not in the sun that happiness lies. Mm-hmm. And the point being that, you know, you know, today's grief is going to rise with the sun in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not going away necessarily. And so sometimes, uh, you know, as a society, as, as, you know, as friends or family and, Sometimes maybe just sit with the person, you know, not, not tell them, hey, mm-hmm. it's going to be okay, going to be better. But um, but it's just interesting, like, 
something like finances, and, and I get it. I get why it does because that, I mean, there's social standing. There's, yep. you know, you want to be able to provide for your family. Um, but that will overwhelm every other thing in your life. And that's one thing and you hyper-focus on that and everything else just kind of goes by and that's all that matters. And because that is failing, well, the only the only solution is to take my life, to end my life. And that's 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 sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really right, sad. right. And how much of you as a person was wrapped up in your financial situation, yeah. right? Your identity as a person was wrapped up in financial success and you can't imagine yourself without that. I mean, on some level, family, society, we did them wrong to think that that was who they are. That was their value. Yeah, that's interesting. That Because I, I've been doing a lot of kind of self-study and thinking lately about, well, just reconnecting with myself, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the importance of, above all things, loving myself not in some egotistical, um, self-consumed way, but just just to love myself and to accept and know that I deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. And with that, you know, having that foundation, then I can in a healthy manner go out because that's a healthy understanding of who I am. It's not based on my financial economic situation. It's not based on who's my who are my friends and who aren't my friends. Um, so I, I guess I'm... I'm jumping to, uh, you know, kind of my thoughts on ways to, you know, personally, at least for myself to, to understand, to, you know, when I get that, I think I'll say it this way for me, when I think about these issues, when I think about the problems that I struggle with when it comes to depression, um, in my mind, I think, okay, there, you know, the, the core of it all is this disconnect with myself. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know who I am. I've, and so I'm trying to heal that, and I feel that as I do, and I'm frankly, I've, I felt that, that I'm able to weather more these failures in other areas of my life because those aren't me; those don't define me. Mm-hmm. I am myself, and um, and so I guess I don't. I'm, I, I mean, I think that's a key to resiliency, right? That if I have a self that is enduring, mm-hmm. that is that exists beyond what I have or what I do, right? It's not performative. It's inherent in nature. I have this self that is inherently valuable, which again, you know, I'll usually say to clients that develops really young because it has to develop pre-performance. And I mean, we can perform by two and three, right? Four, five, we're in school. Um, so that puts it, you know, infancy, that puts it the first three years of life. I mean, we would also, you know, with the research we have now say we, you know, we know we need to look at the health of the mother, the stress levels of the mother when she is pregnant in utero, that, mm. that's starting to impact that individual, right? And so, yeah, I, I think when we have that sense of self that is inherently valuable, Sure, life happens, good and bad happens, but we don't necessarily see that as indicative of who I am or what I'm deserving of. Then I think resiliency is much more 
organic, right? It seems, I mean, we kind of were learning from young ages to be resilient, usually through relationships. Our parents were encouraging that resiliency. We had models of resiliency. And just the fact that we felt like we had somebody, we had a soft place to land is resilient in and of itself. You know, I've noticed, you know, as you know, you know, my mom passed away when I was 10 years old. And, um, you know, my dad, for whatever reasons, I know that he had a difficult childhood and he found it difficult to show up emotionally, although I don't know that he would accept that at this point. But, you know, so my siblings and I, we we grew up, you know, my mom passed away in 84 and we spent the next six years or so at least um, kind of just managing things on our own. Um, we're very close as siblings right now and we're very supportive of each other. But I, I, I so I look at, um, I look at that situation and, and there, I would never have admitted this three years ago. But I look at this, my situation now, and I think there was not any emotional safety at home. Mm. You know, there wasn't. Um, there wasn't a sense of, I am scared I can go home to where I'm safe. That, it, it was just, I was just, and my siblings, we were just kind of getting by. And I mean, I still have a hard time talking about that and kind of really coming to terms with that, but but I recognize that now. And I, and I look at friends who, you know, I have, there are a few friends of mine that I look at and I look at their lives. And, I mean, no, no life is perfect and everybody struggles in their, in their, you know, in one way or in another. But it seems to me that I, I, I have friends who seem to have a confidence to go out and risk mm. things. Mm-hmm. I never, I mean, risk in my, I didn't risk anything growing up. I went for certainty, even if that meant, um, you know, subsistence level stuff. You know, I was not going for abundance, but I look at friends who do risk things and seem to go out with just a bunch of, uh, you know, an enormous amount of confidence. And I either through personal observation or through just listening to them talk about their home life, I know that they had a good relationship with their parents. Their parents had a good relationship with each other. And, um, you know, not, there was not a perfect home life, but there was a sense of love mm-hmm. and a sense of acceptance for who they are and encouragement, as you mentioned earlier. And so I, I, I've, you know, as I've been going on this, you know, as I've been trying to work through all these issues that I have, um, I've been more, I've been more aware of that with, with people. And, and to me that what you mentioned, and, and this, this kind of goes back to Gabor Mate, that video that I've referenced before, where he talks about, you know, how as a child, we have two needs, authenticity and attachment. And those are both fundamental needs, core needs. And, as a child, when we're growing, you know, our need for attachment overrides our need for authenticity because we will die if we don't. We're too young. We can't take care of mm-hmm. ourselves. So we need to attach to our caregivers. And if our authenticity comes into conflict with our attachment, meaning that our being ourselves, acting authentically and naturally, 
if that comes into conflict with our attachment, meaning that our, our caregivers are saying uh, that's not okay, and you you know have a sense of of um, um, abandonment, maybe, or a sense of you're going to lose this attachment if mm-hmm. you pursue that. Then I'll you're put gonna, you in timeout. Yeah, I'll put you in timeout. Um, then you are going to abandon yourself, mm-hmm. your authenticity, because you need that attachment. You, you were wired to do that, and and that becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. And and authenticity for young kids shows up very messy. Shows up like temper tantrums. Mm, yeah. Shows like you know it, it doesn't show up as like this is what I want to pursue. Like that is way down the road, right? Initially, it shows up as no, and no in unreasonable circumstances, you know, like, you know, I, there's these, um, posts on social media where they'll talk about, you know, why my two-year-old is crying. And like one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head will say, you know, this kid is sitting there on the floor holding a red ball crying. And it's like, he's crying because he wants the red ball, not the blue ball. And he has the red ball, Mm -hmm. but he's just crying. Right. I mean, again, he might need to nap. He might, who knows. Right. But that authenticity initially shows up really messy. I mean, Gabor uses the example of wanting a cookie when it's dinner time, mm-hmm. or you know, I mean, my kids would do that. Like, I want a popsicle for breakfast, and you're like, okay, <laughs> what else can we have for breakfast, <laughs> right? And then we'll Two get popsicles. to the popsicle. Yeah, um, you know, well, I want the blue popsicle, not the orange one. And you're like, okay, well, let's let's work through that together, right? But if I just get mad, put you in timeout, give consequences. I am shutting down some authenticity. It might at the time feel like it's more efficient as a parent. Yeah. It's easier. It is easier, you know, but I guess the question is what is parenting? Yeah. And what is the cost of certain types of parenting? Yeah. Um, I I read somewhere, heard somewhere that like, so my kids, I'll say, hey, will you, like for instance, will you take the dog for a walk? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 15 minutes later, hey, will you take the dog for a walk? Yeah, I said I'd take the dog for a walk. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Half an hour later, hey, the dog really wants to go for a walk. Dad, I said I'd take the dog for a walk. I'll take the dog for a walk. Right. You know, and and I started to get frustrated and upset, but I read somewhere that, you know what? If you're, you know, let your kid be defiant a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and because and, and, that's them finding themselves. My kids mm-hmm. are great kids, mm-hmm. you know. They're not trying to be belligerent, mm-hmm. you know, but, but they're trying to find a sense of themselves. You know, so I've, the solution I found is, will you give me a time frame? Right. Give me a time frame of when you're going to take the dog for a walk. 15 minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. That way I don't have to keep coming back and asking you and get frustrated. Right. You know, and so, um, but. And I think there's some great resources. There are some great resources that I follow on Instagram. Um, I'm blanking on some of them now. I mean, the secure relationship, um, happiest baby, like just here's what's normal at this, at six months old as a baby. Here's what's normal at two. Here's, you know, like that we can really access education and expectations as parents because it's just more widely available. So I think those are some, also some good resources that kind of reframe um, one that I follow is Dr. Becky. I think there might be something else after that but you know she's a pediatrician talks a lot about you know things like that if you're asking your child like hey can you clean your room and then they say oh I did and you walk past and <laughs> they clearly did not like 
you know, we might want to yell and be like, you're lying to me, but it's important to understand this other piece is going on over here and approach it this way as a parent, right? That for the child, they may not think that they were lying, even though to us as a parent, it might seem pretty black and white, you're lying to me, you know, and, and just some of those that help us frame our expectations around what, what our kids should be doing and what this means if they're doing something else. Well, even with lying, I mean, I think that's part of growing up is learning yes. to lie, Yes, you know, and, and, um, I mean, obviously lying has its negative aspects, right. but as a child, I mean, that's part of learning the boundaries, learning, you know, where does this end and this start, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and how much power do I have? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I wish that I would have learned all of this before I had kids, but, I'm, but you know, what I'm learning really just in the last few years is, um, just keep an open Line mm-hmm. of communication with your kid. Let, let them know, you know, express to them in words and in actions that that you will be there regardless of decisions they make, that they mm-hmm. are welcome regardless of decisions they make. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I think can be really helpful is, you know, I used to work when I was first in the field, I worked with teens who were court ordered for treatment. Mm-hmm. Not the funnest population out there because, you know, they're not coming by choice. Right. Um, it also became clear that, you know, many times parents were more than happy to drop off this problem kid. Mm. And they weren't looking at it like from more of a systemic level, like this is a pro- if If one of the kids in our family is having an issue, the family is having an issue. And it would benefit this particular child if everybody started working on themselves instead of dropping this kid off for therapy week after week, you know? And so I, I think Wes, as if your child is struggling as a parent, the best thing you can do for them is to start working on yourself and understanding what is going on for you. I read something by Carl Jung. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. Something about, um, you know, one of the, biggest impacts on a child's life is a parent's unlived life. Mm -hmm. And that to me, in a sense, um, kind of relates to that. And, uh, sorry, this, had a call come in. I'll call him back. Um, so in, in his, I just – and I guess in a sense is that that's working on your life, like mm-hmm. being being yourself, being who you are, doing things that you enjoy as a parent, you know, obviously keeping in mind that you have a responsibility to care for and protect the children. But you, know, you can do that as well as be yourself and not – I don't know. I, I just think it, it – my observations have been that – when you're hyper-focused on success and advancement of your children at the expense of your developing yourself, I just think that has a, uh, that's just a freight train of bad stuff heading your way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I remember once going on a field trip with my, one of my daughters in school, right, in elementary school. And it was one of those days in Utah, probably a spring day or a fall day where it starts out cold and then it gets warm. Mm-hmm. So all the kids have jackets and then they don't 
want their jackets on and they don't want to carry their jackets. And, you know, I felt like as one of the parent volunteers, you know, one of my jobs was to get all the jackets back to the school classroom, right? Um, and there was another parent volunteering who was getting very upset that the kids themselves were not carrying their jackets. Mm. And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I think that's part of my job is to stand here and hold all the jackets so the teachers don't have to. I mean, I don't know. What, why else am I here, right? Um, to have a nice day with my daughter and her friends, sure. But like to carry my carry all these jackets, right? And he was getting really frustrated, right? And part of me, I just thought, oh, you didn't get to take off your jacket and have somebody hold it for you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say that. You know, I'm a therapist, but I'm not going to say like, do you want me to hold your jacket too? <laughs> like, you should have said, tell me about your mother. <laughs> right. That's what you should have said. But I think, it again, it's one of those, like, our unlived life mm -hmm. of, like, I mean, I remember my kids complaining, like, like I, as their parents, should somehow fix this weather problem that they were having where it's cold in the morning, but it's hot in the afternoon, and I need a jacket, and then I don't want a jacket, but I need it for the next morning. And they would bring it to me, like, Mom, this is intolerable. Like, you need to do something. And I remember for me being like, I didn't even think to complain about it. Yeah. Plus you walked uphill both ways <laughs> <Right>. in snow. <laughs> right. Right? Without and a jacket. Without no. a jacket. <laughs> yeah. And you had to carry your friend's jacket who wouldn't let you wear it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was horrible when you were a child. Um, well, this so, – so coming back to like, you know, so depression. So kind of what we've been talking about then – we have these things that happen in our lives that, you know, can cause a, a loss of sense of self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that, you know, with my non-therapist mind, I think, yeah, I can see why when you lose that sense of yourself, why it would be easy to um, slip into depression because you feel out of control because everything, your sense of self is dependent on external things. Mm -hmm. Your worth comes externally. Your um, comfort and safety comes externally. Mm -hmm. Which it did for those who didn't struggle with depression too, right? Mm. They just got enough of what their nature needed. They got enough nurturing for their nature that it didn't set them up for some disturbances that okay. they struggled with, right? So when you say that... They, I mean, we all have different levels of need. Sure. I would say. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, maybe something for, you know, some form of uh, attention for somebody is sufficient where for another person it's not. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can see that in, in groups where I can see that with my kids. Mm -hmm. You know, some of my kids seem to be fine with whatever. You know, they, they're fine with uh, half a candy bar. The other person needs two candy bars, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was a kid, I remember when I was a kid, I was very, very much, um, you know, I would never, like if the, I've, I always use the example if there are four candy bars and five of us, I would always step away. And I, mm -hmm. wouldn't, I wouldn't fight for another candy bar. And that's not good. I used to think it was good. Mm -hmm. I used to think that was a positive, virtuous um, attribute about myself, but I recognize now that that was me 
um, coping and avoiding conflict and right. avoiding um, confrontation and just stepping back and, you know, this scarcity mentality. Like I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just, uh, you know. And in scarcity mentality, somebody has to go without. Yeah. And so I guess it's good that one person's temperament and life experiences says that they'll they'll take that, they'll draw the short straw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I could control that. Mm-hmm. I could control my not getting anything, mm-hmm. but if I get in there, then I can't necessarily control the outcome. Mm-hmm. I still may end up with zero. Right. But this way, I make the call. Mm-hmm. And um, which I think that um, ability for kids to internalize and make it personal. I mean, I I think that you know sometimes I will say we can't underestimate our ability to. Make it personal as a kid. You know, sometimes I'll say I think we have to believe that we have healthy parents or we have parents who we can depend on. And so even when the facts dispute that, the kids are going to make it about themselves. Well, these parents are dependable, but I didn't clean my room. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I got treated this way or that's why I don't feel like I matter or I'm getting punished or whatever that looks like, right? They'll... There's a sense of if if I can just do it right next time, I'll get what I need. Yeah. And I think in some ways that protects our psyche. It protects us psychologically to believe that. It causes problems down the road, right? We might have anxiety and depression. We might struggle with addiction. We might struggle with a lot of things down the road. Um, but in the short term, it protects us. Yeah, and I see that. I mean, because that's what I did. I took it all upon myself and uh, because I didn't have to rely on anybody else. It was just me. I was, you know, I, I was, tr- if I could just do it better or if I could just manage this, but it was all my fault. In fact, I went so far for so long as to um, deny that, you know, my mom dying when I was 10 years old had any negative impact on mm-hmm. me. You know, I would make it a point to say, you know, I, these are my decisions. I'm responsible for these. And yeah, I am responsible for those decisions. Absolutely. But to, to think that my mother dying when I was 10 years old has no impact on mm-hmm. my decision-making abilities now is ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous. But that's what I accepted because I want, I didn't want, I, I didn't want to uh, feel like I was... making excuses, I guess, you know, I wanted to own it. Well, I I remember this lady I I worked with, um, she also did Amway on the side, that multi-level marketing kind Mm -hmm. of the original big boy. And I remember in her cubicle, she had pictures of the, uh, the guy who started Amway. She had pictures of him or maybe it was just his, his personal jet Mm -hmm. and his mansion in her cubicle and she had those up as inspiration but she was depressed a lot I mean well I use the term depressed kind of you know casually there but she wasn't happy and I remember one weekend or one Monday she came back into work and she just had a skip in her step Mm -hmm. so I was talking to her one lunch and she explained to me that she had gone to an Amway conference the weekend before spent like $300 to go to this conference and I was like oh Okay, and she was telling me about it, and and part of what she told me was, you know what, 
the problem is not the product. The problem is I just wasn't putting enough time in to the product and to getting it sold. And I remember mm-hmm. just stepping away thinking, wow, they took $300 from you to tell you that you're the problem. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. Right. <laughs> that's where that's why he can afford that jet and that that mansion. And at the time, I didn't think of it beyond that. But I look back now and I just think, mm, how many times did I get suckered into the same yeah. type of thing yeah. in my life? Maybe not as blatantly, but I got suckered into a lot of times thinking I'm the problem. I am the problem. Right. When yes, I contributed to the problem certainly. I, I know that I've made, you know, a lot of mistakes and contributed a lot of problems, but my fixing my problems isn't going to fix a lot of the situations I've been in, mm-hmm. you know, in my life. But I've taken it all on me thinking I'll just do better. Right. I'll just do better. I think about that a lot now with my kids and I just think, you know, I got divorced recently and I, I'll tell my kids cause they'll, they will, uh, talk about not measuring up and or not you know they've failed each other as siblings Mm. and i just have to stop them and and i just i try to explain to them like listen you you guys didn't create this situation your mom and i created this situation Mm -hmm. and you're just children who were you know subject to it you did nothing to create this and you know I, i hope that they understand that and feel that way but i just as a kid, I, I know that I bought into that all the time. And it wasn't even necessarily fed to me directly. It's just what I perceived. Mm-hmm. I'm the problem. Mm-hmm. I need to fix this. And it, that comes from growing up. And and that kind of going back to earlier, that comes back, you know, in my mind, I think that goes back to just losing a sense of myself. Right. I don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't. And because of that, not only, do I, not only would I um, become what other people needed to me, needed me to be, um, not only would I myself do that, but I would allow other people to do that to me as well. You know, Mm -hmm. I would be defined by other people and I couldn't shake it. I couldn't stand up and say, that's not me. Right. That's not me. And I think when we think of like a infant, right, they're usually not born suppressing their needs, Mm -hmm. suppressing their emotions. Now, I mean, Usually, for a lot of infants, they learn that at some age. They learn to suppress emotions. They learn to suppress wants and needs. If they do it too soon, we call that failure to thrive. And that's a life-threatening situation for an infant, right, where they're not eating. They're not growing. They're, you know, I mean, they're not thriving. They're not hitting those developmental milestones we measure for uh, the first year or two of life. But I, I think, you know, it may not threaten us the same way the first year or two of life physically like life-threatening but I think denying those things are life-threatening yeah I I think physically life-threatening and also just having a life life threatening Mm -hmm. you are not yourself you are um, an actor in somebody else's play and Mm -hmm. you and you get you know I I wrote a poem a, a while ago about being you know some people live their lives like a movie scripted and you get cast in their movie mm-hmm. in a certain role and that's all you'll ever be in that and no matter what you do you are cast and you have to play that part and if you don't have a sense of who you are then you will pay, play that part and you will never get out 
mm-hmm. of that movie. Mm-hmm. You were there and you right. were locked in. You will see yourselves as they scripted you to yeah. be. Yep. And you may be scripted in multiple mm-hmm. people's movies and you're playing different parts. I mean, it's, I guess in Hollywood, that's, that's, uh, something that you want you want to be able to have this right. range of <laughs> range of characters you know this uh, what do they call it uh, when they go deep into it uh character no um oh i forget what it is uh, but anyway yeah it's but but we also see that back as a skilled actor we bring it back to or actress right we bring it back to the person yeah and say look at their ability to you know play different parts in very different roles mm-hmm. and not get stuck kind of typecast, right? But we we don't see the roles as them. We see the actor or actress as the one being able to do that. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. That's a good distinction. Whereas in life, like I know for me, I, I – this was you – know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day. And I had this, oh, just their fear of being, their fear of, of like being authentic, that they'd be rejected. And I've, and I've thought back and I thought, you know, I, I can relate to that so much because never really having a, a sense of what I liked or what I wanted, I was afraid to commit to anything because what if I committed to something and then people go away from me? And it turns out that, yeah, I don't really like that anyway, you mm-hmm. know, and now I've committed something and lost these relationships, you know, to whatever varying degree they were for something that was not really, that didn't really mean anything to me, but I just adopted that. So I never would commit to anything. Mm-hmm. I always would hedge my bets, you know, and, and, um, that adds up. It adds up and it piles up. Um, you know, and coming back to our, our topic of, of depression, I can see how that not knowing who you are is going to cause that, you know, to, to the degree you don't know who you are, your depression is, I mean, I, I guess you can, I, I don't know if this is a true statement or not, but it seems like to the, to the degree that you don't know who you are, you know, your depression can be measured by that or Mm -hmm. if you're depressed, like if you know who you are, it just seems to me that it would be easier to weather these sad times because everybody has sad times. Everybody has Mm -hmm. times that, that knock them down. But I think they would describe it differently, right? I think they Mm. would say, I'm struggling. This has been a hard year for me and Mm -hmm. here's why, da, 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 da. And they would expect that, Talking about it, sharing it would, you know, having a connection around that would help them in the struggle. They would, they wouldn't see it as who they are. They would see this as a difficult event that they have been struggling with. And they would, somebody with that type of self-connection would, would probably have um, good relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, authentic relationships not to say that people who don't because I know I I look back at my life and you know notwithstanding my lack of self-connection I have I've always had people who cared about me and were there for me and loved me 
Now, whether I had the courage to reach out, um, that wasn't until, I don't know, I always felt like I had to keep a, you know, I can do hard things. I'm just going to mm-hmm. be positive. You know, this toxic positivity I've heard mentioned. Um, you know, I think that's a denial of the fact that we're co-formed, right? I mean, co-meaning with another mm-hmm. and probably with many others. Like that is how we are formed as individuals. We're formed through the impact and influence and experience with others. But I think if that goes negatively, you know, then we're going to deny that relational piece and think I need to do it on my own. You know, sometimes we talk about like toxic independence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, that's a fear of relationships. It's a fear of having other people show up in your life and how that's going to affect you or, you know, just losing yourself in, if somebody shows up in your life. And so I value independence over, like, I mean, the term we use is interdependent, mm-hmm. right? But I think, you know, with depression, I mean, there is that loss of connection to self. And I think, too, there's a fear of if I knew myself, it would confirm all my worst fears. Okay. Um, can you just maybe explain a little bit more about what you mean when you say that? Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a tendency we have as young, impressionable human beings that if I were worthy, I would get what I need. I would have the things that I see other people having, not necessarily materially, but more like you were talking about that emotional attunement, that emotional connection, that feeling of safety, that feeling of I matter, I'm important just for being myself, right? Mm -hmm. And so when that doesn't happen for us, I think likewise, we develop these fears that like, what does that say about me? That uh, That must mean that deep down, there are some really bad things at the core of who I am. Otherwise, I would have had a different life story. I would have had a different I would have different experiences. I would feel differently about myself. Now, there's some flawed logic in that. But I work with a lot of clients that, you know, sometimes I'll say, like, the core of who you are, it's going to feel comfortable because it's you. You're going to like it because it's you. And it's going to be good, right? Because I do believe inherently human beings are good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes they're kind of like, "Mm." I don't know, that sounds a little like therapy, wishful thinking, right? But as we continue to work on different events in their life, how it shaped them, help them kind of unpack their life story, they'll usually come to that place of like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't me. I had a client who was like, wait a minute, I'm not fucked up. I was fucked up. It was like this aha moment, right? And I was like, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We need to make (laughs) t-shirts. Right? (laughs) Right. There's a marketing opportunity there. Um, And, you know, that client, that particular client was like, but that feels liberating. Mm -hmm. Like if it's not who I am at the core, it can be different. Yeah. I can be different. My life can be different. My relationships can be different. Right. 
to me, that has like been the, the best understanding is that I can change. Mm-hmm. You know, I can change these things that have happened to me. I, you know, my understanding is it used to be that, you know, in, in neuroscience and brain science is that, you know, the brain didn't develop after a certain time. But it's understood now that this neuroplasticity mm-hmm. where, you know, the brain is just a, a uh, it's just a ball of gelatin in, in your skull with these electricity running through it. Right. It's mind boggling to... Uh, mind boggling to think of the mind, but, um, but the mind changes, you can Mm -hmm. reroute, you can retrain your brain. And to understand that is pretty exciting, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it takes work, right? It's not going to just happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like those things that they market where you put on your abs and it just like shocks your abs until you get a six pack because that doesn't work. work? No, (laughs) they don't work. They just hurt. And it's funny to watch people who are using them. But, um, yeah, so it's you know understanding that yes, you can change, but also that it's going to require work and it's going to require mm-hmm. effort and it's going to require time. And but, it's painful. And it's incredibly painful, but it's also therapeutic. It's also healing. It's also comforting as well. Mm-hmm. You know, right. with that pain comes the comfort. One thing that I've learned is is the comfort and healing power of crying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is not, you know. It, the fact that we have um, wrapped crying up with a, you know, with shame and put a bow on it, like, you, you know, boys don't cry, men don't cry, mm-hmm. you know, that's such a travesty because our body cries for a reason. Right. It's not weakness at right. all. Right. It's, and it's, it's healing. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea that we can change, that we can change our minds, we can change our, our, you know, the way we feel and understand ourselves and others is so mm-hmm. powerful and liberating and encouraging. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging. So going back to when I was talking at the beginning of this episode, as a new therapist, right, and having clients who identified or had been diagnosed chemical depressed versus situational, and it seemed like the preferred diagnosis was chemical. And, you know, going back, remembering back to sitting with those clients and listening to them, it was like, if it was chemical, it it wasn't my fault. Hmm. Whereas if it was situational, maybe it was my fault. Oh, interesting. And, you know, I, I remember thinking at the time, like, but if it's chemical, you're screwed. Yeah. Like if if this is biological or if this is all DNA, then I'm going to be out of a job here. Because why would we work with therapists if yeah. it's a bio- biology and that's what it is? Right, get, it's get set medication. in stone. And so, you know, I, I remember thinking and talking with my supervisor, like, it would seem like the better news is situational. Yeah. But that's not what I'm feeling when I'm sitting and talking with them, right? And But I think it goes back to it's my fault. I don't want to be blamed, mm. which I think is valid. And what that says to me is there is pain, and that pain is valid. And on some level, the suffering is, we think, deserving. Is it ever deserving? No. I don't think so no. either. No. It's tragic, right? And yeah. to me, 
that as a therapist, and I've been doing this a long time, the tragedy is they don't figure out it doesn't have to be that way. One thing that that I've come to recently is that I deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never really thought about that, that I didn't deserve to be loved. Um, and that's, you know, the idea that I deserve to be loved and that I should expect to be loved. Mm-hmm. That's really new to me in the last month or so, frankly. Mm-hmm. And, um, How did you come to that? You said you came to that. Yeah. Um, I came to that a couple ways. First of all, I, I've just been thinking a lot about my situation. And I think the biggest, the first step for me was to understand that, you know, these relational problems that I, I've had, you know, I got divorced. And part of me yearns to reconnect with my ex-wife mm-hmm. to be frank and but i but i also know very well that that's not going to heal the pain that i have and, you know i've thought okay when have i felt this pain before in my life and i you know and i mean it's very distinct with her because we were married for 20 plus years but i felt it in other ways in my life too and and i've i i thought okay this is a fear of like abandonment, a fear of being mm-hmm. alone, a loneliness. But I, I realized that, but I felt this at other times as well. So I came to the conclusion that the the solution to this is to go inside of me because there are fracture, there's a fracture inside of me mm-hmm. where I have lost myself. And because of that, I have this fear of being abandoned. I, I've, I even recognize that I've had this fear like when I was, um, I am going camping once there's a, you know, a number of us there. I woke up in the morning, came out of my tent and everybody had their tents packed up and then their cars mm-hmm. ready to go. And I had this anxiety, like I'm going to be left. Mm-hmm. I've got to hurry and mm-hmm. just get my stuff packed and get it away. And so I, so I understood it. So through that process, I kind of had this realization that, okay, I need to work on myself and loving myself. And and, re, and and while reconnecting with myself. And then one morning I realized, I just woke up and I was thinking about this and I realized, you know, when I talk about authenticity and when I talk about reconnecting to myself, what I'm really talking about is loving myself and knowing that I am lovable. Or not lovable necessarily. That sounds more like a Valentine's Day thing to say. But that I deserve to be loved and mm-hmm. I'm worthy of love. Regardless of what other people think, whatever the people say that I deserve to be loved, I'm worthy of love. And then... Um, no more than anybody else, right. but as much as everybody exactly. else. Exactly. And I... Yeah, exactly. That's exa- What you said is exactly the understanding that I had. And so I started to understand that one morning. This was just a few weeks ago, actually. And... It's almost like I understand. I've understood these concepts and principles in abstract, almost, mm-hmm. and I've understood them. And then, just one morning, I just they all coalesced, and I saw how they related to me. And I thought, mm. oh, oh, I deserve to be loved. I'm worthy of love, just as everybody else is, and I need to go in and 
first love myself mm-hmm. because I deserve to love myself and I need to do that. And then I was, there's that book, uh, the boy, the horse, the mm-hmm. fox and the mole. The yeah, the boy, the the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. That's what it is. Okay, I've got it over there. If we need to yeah. double check, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I see it. Um, and I listen to the audio version, and I recommend that to everybody because there's just something very calming and and I want to use the word healing when I say it because it is a powerful, powerful listen. The book's great, but the listen is. I mean, it's off the charts. But anyway, at the end, the boy says, I figured out why we're here. And the horse says, why? And the boy says, to love. And then the horse says, and to be loved. And I, this was just in the last couple of weeks when I, when that came into my ears, it just went straight to my heart. Mm -hmm. And I just, I started crying and I just thought, yeah. To be loved. I forget about that. To be loved. And we all need that. And that's not asking something that... It's not asking too much. Right. I mean, it makes me think, like I said, Gabor Mate talks about our lungs exist because they expect oxygen. And, you know, we exist... Because we expect to be loved. Mm-hmm. We, and not just loved, but enjoyed. Yeah. Um, if that, if, if we didn't have oxygen, right, we would be a different species. I mean, I don't know what that would look like. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there would be a species, but it wouldn't look like us. Mm-hmm. It would be somehow different. And so if we come with that expectation of being loved, being enjoyed, of um, being connected with, right, and that doesn't happen. That's a different species. That's a different self. It's a different person. You have to adapt. Right. Because we are an adaptable species. Mm-hmm. And we will find a way to survive. We mm-hmm. always do. For good or bad. Yep. And um, trying to think of a line in that book. Um That book's just got so much wisdom in it. Um, But yeah, so that understanding for me was enormous. And I think back on that a lot. And and it's kind of focused, it's kind of narrowed and focused my, what I'm working on. Um, Just like I, I view things, okay, what's, you know, how do I show love for myself? And again, I'm not talking about a you know, this narcissistic, uh, self-consumed, uh, it's all about me mm-hmm. because... Well, because again, if if we really got what we wanted that connected us with our unique purpose, that's not narcissism. No, no. And what I found is I feel a lot of love for myself when I am giving love to my children. Mm-hmm. And when I am, and when I'm, when I'm listening to them or trying to talk to them about what they're going through and things... When I am trying to help them see that they deserve to be loved, you know, through words or act, whatever, I feel that for myself. Mm-hmm. And what else it helped? What, what the other thing it's helped me with is it's helped me to have more empathy for other people. And 
I, I see other people in a way that they deserve to be loved too, mm-hmm. regardless of their faults. And maybe they don't see that in themselves, but I right. can show that to them by being respectful, whoever they are, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it's not always easy to do. Right. In fact, a lot of times it's not easy to do. It's easier to do to strangers than it is to people close to mm-hmm. you who hurt you. But, but in the process, I feel that um, I am learning to love myself more as I look at others and, and acknowledge they all deserve mm-hmm. to be loved regardless of who or where they are, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I was talking with a client who is new to sobriety and, you know, talking about, I mean, not brand, brand new, but, you know, newish. Um, and she was saying, you know, she had been someplace where a lot of, you know, the people she was hanging out with were drinking, which was one of her substances of choice. And, you know, we were just kind of talking about it. And she was like, I'm just not sure how to frame it. Like, I don't want to be judgmental. And I said, I, I just think, you know, and I shared, I said, look, I've been a therapist a long time. And sometimes it's difficult to have friends as a therapist because people will say, I mean, there have been times I'm just like listening to somebody and they're like, you're diagnosing me, aren't you? (laughs) And you're like, uh, no, but I might be right now. Um, (laughs) no, just kidding. Right. But I'm just like, I think I spot pain easier. And I, you know, told this client, as somebody in recovery, I think maybe you have more sensitivity to others' pain. You see it. You just see it, especially when you've walked that path yourself. And that's not necessarily judging people, but we start to become aware of how much pain people carry around and how much pain people are living with. I felt that. I can talk to people and... You know, I don't I don't know specifics of people's lives, but I can have a general idea of what they're struggling with mm-hmm. emotionally. You know, I I kind of, I kind of it's been interesting to me as I have you know become more self aware of mm-hmm. what I'm going through and and the progress and as I'm making progress and um I kind of think that that movie Unbreakable with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson came out in I think 2000. You know, he was had this Bruce Willis had this super strength, but he forgot all about it. Mm. because, you know, he wanted to marry his wife. And so he just hid it because, you know, it would get in the way of that relationship. And so he forgot all about it. And eventually he comes to understand what his pain is or or what his power is rather. And there's a scene, he goes into the, um, I think it was Grand Central Station. I don't know if it's in New York, but he goes in this big train station, looked like Grand Central Station. And he just kind of puts his hands out and people start like brushing up against him. And he starts seeing their lives mm. and understanding, you know, like things that they've done or pain that they've had. And it's just been interesting that as I've done this, I feel that, you know, I can't diagnose people. I, but I, you know, I know what I've gone through mm-hmm. and I know where I'm at and I know what I've struggled with. And I can see the struggles with people. I can hear the language they use. Mm-hmm. I can hear, you know, the, the phrases and words. And I don't – in what it's what it's caused me to do is not to be judgmental, mm-hmm. but to feel so much empathy and concern and love and and wanting to reach out, you know. And it's not always appropriate to reach out to somebody right, in that situation, right. you know. Sometimes you just got to listen and hope that they can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also starts to connect us, yeah. to connect us as human beings who are living life right and being impacted by that. When we start to 
do our own work, when we start to face our own story, we find a greater connection to people, right? Strangers, maybe people we know well. There's just something deeper that connects us there. And, you know, we may, the details of the stories may be a little bit different, but we have an understanding of each yeah. other that because we've walked similar paths, we we have a respect for each other and we have a connection with each other. Yeah, I, I've kind of likened it to like, you know, we have this umbrella of commonality mm-hmm. of, of hu- the human condition. Mm-hmm. And then underneath that umbrella, we just have all these, you know, these variances. You know, I, I made a comment recently I'm on a pot, you know, just the last podcast, actually, episode I talked to, we talked about literature, um, you know, because I've always commented that I think we can learn more through reading the, these classics of literature that have survived the test of time than all of these, you know, well-meaning self-help books. Because my my thinking behind that is number one, just my experience of reading them. I just I come away like my body just kind of absorbs, infuses it, kind of like yeah, I, that message rings true to me. I mean, I see these people in their lives, and mm-hmm. but also, you know, the the reason why they've survived the test of time is because they they deal with the human condition. Mm-hmm. And we can relate to that. Even, you know, the example I used was, you know, uh, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, Homer was able, I mean, he was human like you and I, and he had the same passions and fears and pains and all the same stuff running through his veins that we do. And he, you know, being, you know, he had the gift to be able to infuse his writing with that. Mm-hmm. And so people read it and they don't, uh, I use the term that, you know, we don't feel alone in our brokenness or maybe our woundedness. Um, and so that survives because it helps people. And, you know, so to, to your point, we have this commonality of, you know, we, we all feel pain. Generally speaking, our pains, our emotional pains are triggered by similar things, mm-hmm. you know, from different angles for each of us, but loss of connection, that's huge. Mm-hmm. It's not a simple thing. Right. It's not a small thing. And, I mean, you can see that through, like, that's an interrogation technique. You know, you separate mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and you alienate them and you make them feel alone. Or solitary, solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. The yeah. worst punishment. Yeah. It's it's the worst because you, you rob them of connection. So I want to, um, you know, as we're wrapping, up, wrapping this up, I, I want to talk a little bit about something, you know, what we might be able to do, like, if... If there's somebody who we know who, who who we might suspect that maybe they're having suicidal thoughts or, mm-hmm. or like when you hear like when someone says suicidal ideation, what exactly does that mean? I mean, to me, it's that they're, you know, tossing around the idea of suicide. They're okay. having ideas about suicide. Now, we know as a mental health professional, and I don't think this is just in our training Um I think teachers get it, different nurses get it, right? Doctors get it. Um, We know that there's different uh, suicidal ideations that are more lethal than others, right? Mm -hmm. If there's a plan, um, if they have access to the plan. Um, You know, also, it's interesting having been in the field for a long time. I used to hear people talk about, like, if somebody was suicidal, it was only a matter of time before they completed. Like... Almost like, why bother helping them? Like a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Hmm. And fortunately, now we have the research that says no, 
no, suicide is actually quite impulsive. Yeah. Now, it, it may be, you know, several years uh, struggle or a long-term struggle, right, that feels insurmountable by the person. But actually making an attempt or following through being successful is, well, I wouldn't say successful, but, you know, following through, um, completing, um, it's pretty impulsive. Yeah. And, you know, we have people who survived suicide attempts. And so some of the research has been talking to them and, you know, longitudinally studying them and seeing how their life changed because they survived. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, come to more of the conclusion that like actually in that moment when we're impulsive, where there's an overwhelming feeling of isolation, of helplessness, powerlessness. And so if, if we can start connecting, you know, making them feel like even whether it's in conversations, you know, if somebody does open up and say, hey, I struggle with this. You know, one of the things I've learned as a therapist and had to tell my friends over the years is there's not a school that gives us the magic answers. Mm -hmm. um, you still have to show up and be human. And a lot of times it's saying, I'm not exactly sure what to say in this moment, but I'm so glad you shared that with me. And that's a good answer as a therapist. It's a good answer as a friend. It's a good answer as a parent saying, let's get you the help because I want you to be here. I want you to be here next year and in five years and in 10 years. I want to see who you become. So let's let's get you some help. That sounds really painful. I like how you phrased that. Let's I want to see who you become. You know, I've I've mentioned I've talked to my daughter and she's okay that I mentioned this, but you know, two years ago she attempted suicide and um one thing that was hard for her was people would say, I would be so sad if you killed yourself. And, you know, that would hurt me if you killed yourself. It was all about them, mm -hmm. all about their mm -hmm. feelings. And, and I, you know, to their, you know, that's a natural thing to say, I think. And I don't, I don't think anybody meant harm by that mm -hmm. because, yeah, I, I would be incredibly devastated if she had been, if she had followed through, if, if, it, mm -hmm. if she had actually completed, completed it. Um, so I don't, I, I know that they weren't meaning anything bad by it, but in her mind, she just thought, it's Here's you, me huh? hurting people yeah. again. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. I don't want it. So I have to stay alive so that you don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. So I have to live my life to keep you from avoiding pain. That's the message she got. And she would say, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense to me why I have to continue living. So, you, so the way you phrase it, I think is because that's really what it is. I mean, you, I want to see who you become. Mm -hmm. I want to see who you become. Um, I like that. And, and so are there, are there things that, that you would suggest that we can look for? Like if we, I, I know one thing that I've heard is just come out and ask them, are you mm -hmm. having suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts? You know, rather than just trying to beat around the bush and try to not hurt or offend or make them upset, right. just come out and straight up ask. Yes. Are you suicidal? Yeah. And go from there. Now I can see, I can imagine them saying no when really they are. So are there things that we can look for? What, what, what types of things can we see? What would you suggest? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, there is, 
I mean, it is known. This kind of, I think, became popular in the, oh, who was that actor that did the after-school movies, right? Um, remember those, the after-school movies? I do remember those. Um, and it was a suicide, um, Chad Lowe, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, and, and things seemed to be going better after significant depression and all of a sudden things started to get better. That can happen, right, where just the plan being in place and thinking there's an end to this can make the person a little bit lighter. And so I think just being aware if, if there's a significant shift in mood, asking about that okay. and what what changed. So you're saying if, if they are depressed and just not doing well, and then one day they just seem to be better, mm-hmm. it's it could be an indication that maybe they've come to this, the resolution, I'm going to do this, and now the stress, that decision is mm-hmm. no longer, and so they feel better. Mm-hmm. There's an end in sight. Okay. That's interesting. And so I, I think sometimes, you know, I mean, I ask a lot of my clients, like, I mean, I asked you in this episode, like when you said, I'm connecting more to myself, how did you make that happen? How'd you come to that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of different ways people come to that. There's not a wrong answer, but if there doesn't seem to be an answer or not when they're willing to share I'm going to be more concerned. Okay. And um, so if you have concerns and I, I, so I'm just interested because I think, you know, I've been asked that question before on, you know, on, on, on intakes and things. And I pause when I like, are you having suicidal thoughts or ideation? And I pause because I think, how is this going to impact me? Like at what point if I, if I am, but I'm like, if I just thought about it, but I don't, uh, but it's not really a thing I'm interested in, but I've thought about it. Do I put that down? Like at what point? Cause I think there's probably some hesitation for people to fill it out because they don't want to be like involuntarily committed mm-hmm. or something. So Jeff, I mean, can you speak to that? Yeah. Like at what? what well, and, and again, people are more than a checkbox, right? right? We're more complex. So, I mean, we have our intake forms. We ask questions. We always go over it in person, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I find, I mean, it's not a problem for me, but I find what they check in the intake paperwork is different than what they share in a session, mm-hmm. um, which is why we do it both ways, yeah. right? And I think, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm a much more nuanced therapist as the longer I've been in it. And so maybe sometimes rookie mistakes that therapists make is, you know, to ask without explaining why I'm asking. Mm. So, you know, I might say, hey, you know, you indicated that you've struggled with some depression. Can I ask some more questions just so I know, you know, what it looks like for you and what we are going to need to address in the time that we work together? And I may say, if you have questions, let's talk about it, right? And I may also say, here's what I would be referring for care. Here's what that would look like. You know, I, I mean, I've had clients who go to residential treatment centers or are hospitalized with depression. And I'll usually say, you know, if, if possible, I'd like to touch base with you when you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're being discharged, come back to me. So I, I don't want them to feel like somehow they're failing, like, this is more about concern and keeping you safe so that you can work through the difficulties that are coming up currently. But I'm also going to be here, even if for a time I'm referring to a higher level of care, I, I will 
make that phone call. I mean, sometimes I make that phone call with them sitting there. Um, and then when you're coming back, I'm going to be here to receive you back, right? So it's not necessarily um, you're too much for me um, or you're doing something wrong and failing. And so it's punitive that we're referring on, right? So I'll usually unpack that a little bit more. And, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, calling a hospital isn't necessary and calling a loved one to come in and somebody that they feel safe with, a friend, a sibling, something like that, and talking to them and helping. I mean, you don't want to dump it on that other person and have them be like, what am I supposed to do? Um, you know, I my college-age daughter, one of her friends was suicidal. And, she, you know, I mean, she's texting me. She's got him on the phone. She got him to the hospital. And then, you know, he stayed for a little while, and the hospital discharged him to her. And she's like, Mom, wh- what do I do? Like <laughs> – I don't know how to take care of my friend. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, we had to get his parents involved and some different things like that. But, you know, you don't want to discharge somebody to somebody who has no idea what to do. So as a therapist, I'm going to be like, here's some things to look for. And here's ways that you can be helpful. Um, And, you know, thinking that they're sick uh, isn't probably helpful understanding that they struggle like maybe you're a safe person because you've shared struggles and you're real to them that's been very helpful that's why they feel safe having you come into a session you know I'm, I might I mean as a therapist I'm going to increase sessions mm-hmm. so we're not just meeting once a week maybe we're meeting three times a week for a couple of weeks and maybe this support person is coming in for those sessions yeah I when you think about what leads up to that, I mean, earlier you mentioned, you know, that suicide is usually impulsive, mm-hmm. but that um, it seems to me there's that it is preceded by an immense amount for a long duration of pain and darkness mm-hmm. and loneliness and powerlessness and powerlessness. Yes, and that to me breaks my heart mm-hmm. that. People, and and I know it's not a small number. I mean, I, I I was looking up on the CDC, like suicide is the 11th leading cause of death, which to me seems pretty high. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of causes of death. Um, and so to think of the people whose lives get to that point, it's just it's heartbreaking. And um, I, I do... And so I th- it seems to me that the, the the front line of that should be being aware of each other mm-hmm. and being aware of ourselves, first of all, so that we can be aware of others and just checking in on others. I mean, I, I'm sure that each of us knows somebody who is not doing well emotionally mm-hmm. and could maybe just use a phone call or just a check-in and just to let them know that, hey, you know what? Not any reason in particular. I was just thinking about you and wondering how you're doing. Mm-hmm. I know I've gotten those calls from friends and family, mm-hmm. and and that is incredibly like um, I don't know what the word uh, healing, um, comforting maybe mm-hmm. is the word. And so hopefully, you know, those people can find the comfort and the love that they, they need. I, I do know that uh, last 
July, I think, in the United States, at least, they instituted a national suicide hotline, mm-hmm. which is 988, which I think is fabulous. Um, Similar know, to 911? Yes. And, and I know there have been local suicide hotlines for a while, but mm-hmm. to make it uh, a national one is, you know, I think that's a good move. So, mm-hmm. I, just, I mean, that's also one of the things I think the pieces of research that showed it was somewhat impulsive is the sui- national suicide hotline, right? If people use that as a resource, they tend to make it through that day. Now, maybe they have to make it through other days, mm-hmm. but being able to reach out, connect to somebody, have somebody talk them through, say, call me back tomorrow, right? Those types of things, they get through. Yeah. And and, and it takes effort on the part of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a, a, it's not a uh, one and done type fix. Mm-hmm. And we, we as a society, as friends and family and loved ones need to understand that and, and be willing to give what it takes. And, and, and I guess, so I'm just thinking about this now, you know, when we know our own value, when we know that we are worthy to be loved and we expect to be loved, I think when we have that understanding of ourselves, then we see it in other people as well. And we are more willing to make the effort Mm-hmm. to go out there and lift them up instead of having this mentality, you just got to pull yourself up. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to mm-hmm. do it. We do hard things. You know, you just got to suck up and do it, mm-hmm. you know, because. And not just that we lift them up, but like by lifting them, we lift ourselves. Yes. Not in a way that, again, is better than, but just says as a human being, I need those emotional connections. Those are moments of privilege that we have. And, and, I mean, not just privilege, but we need them. We need those moments of connection. And, you know, yeah, connection is fun. It can be fun. And it's great when it's all fun. But I think connection is really deep when it's actually not very fun, right? When it's pretty messy and the emotions are heavy. And we're showing up and holding that. And, And by holding it, we're saying, I just, you matter to me and I care about you. It reminds me of that song, Me Find It Here, by uh, Towns Van Sant. Let me see. Pause it. Get the lyrics. It's called um, If I Needed You. He says, I'm going to read the lyrics, and then how about we just end on that? Okay, it's such good. a great song. It says, If I needed you, would you come to me? Would you come to me and ease my pain? If you needed me, I would come to you. I would swim the seas for to ease your pain. In the night forlorn, oh, the morning's born, and the morning shines with the lights of love. And you will miss sunrise if you close your eyes. That would break my heart in two. The lady's with me now since I showed her how to lay her lily hand in mine. Loop and lil agree she's a sight to see, a treasure for the poor to find. If I needed you, would you come to me? Would you come to me and ease my pain? If you needed me, I would come to you. I would swim the seas for it to ease your pain. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful song. It is. Beautiful Can I add song. one thing? Yeah. Because I think the best uh, anecdote, right, is prevention. Mm-hmm. And so if our kids know, we'll come to them. If the people we love know, I will come to you. 
because we are coming to them, not mm. because we say that we will, but yes. because we are. We're showing up and saying, tell me about your day. And we listen and we sometimes, I mean, sometimes, you know, in, I remember in like third grade or second grade, I'm like, wow, there's just a lot of drama that I don't find interesting, but I want my daughters to feel I am interested mm -hmm. in what's happening. And so if we are proactive and saying, I will come to you because I do come to you. I come to you about the mundane. Mm -hmm. I come to you about whatever, right? I show interest. Then they already know that they'll that somebody will come for them. I think that's the point. The prevention, making it a, a way of life, mm -hmm. not just I'll, if you ever need me, here I am. No, they need to see it and feel it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for joining me today, Jackie. I Always appreciate happy it. to be here. Okay. All right. And uh, thank you for all of you who've listened. And um, until next time. Thanks.